This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. Johnny Carson, well, he legitimized late-night television. He launched hundreds of careers, dominated the ratings landscape, and taught everyone how to do what he did. Only no one could do it like he did it. And nobody ever has. And so for the hour, we're going to spend time on this man, all the people he influenced, and most importantly, with his great generosity, all the people he championed, all, all of the artists in particular, and all of the comedians so many of whom wouldn't be here without Johnny Carson. In 1962, back when Johnny Carson hosted ABC's Who Do You Trust? A game show he launched with a newly hired unknown sidekick, Ed McMahon, he made this announcement to the world. I go over to, uh, on The Tonight Show on NBC starting October the 1st as the host of that show, and Ed goes with me as the announcer on the show. So I'm gonna... And so it started... A legend was born, and the question became, as in every artistic endeavor, by the way, this happens when a marriage starts. It starts this kind of conversation when a business starts, or any kind of partnership, if you're lucky enough to have one that endured like Carson's did with Ed McMahon. What were they going to talk about? What were they going to do? So as we're walking down, I said, how do you see my role down here tonight? And he said, Ed, I don't even know how I see my own role. Let's just go down and entertain the hell out of them. From New York, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. Right now, let's welcome the fellow you waited six months to see. This is kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time. And the newspapers and the magazines, and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this. And you get kind of charged up. I don't mean to be maudlin about it, but I know that tonight a lot of people, a lot of my friends are watching all over the country. And I only have one feeling as I, I stand here knowing that so many people are watching. I want my man there. <laughs> and he started right there with his trademark self-deprecation. He loved to make fun of himself, and I think he put everyone at ease because of it. Carson was born in Iowa on October 23, 1925, and when he was eight, his family moved to Norfolk, Nebraska, where father Kit Carson worked for the local power company. Johnny had a younger brother, Dick, and an older sister, Catherine, who was the favorite of the mother, Ruth. Mrs. Carson later said that she didn't like boys. They were dirty and nasty and not pleasant, she said. Actually, she's pretty right. We are pretty dirty, and we are pretty unpleasant. I'm not sure about the nasty part. In the later years, when he revisited his childhood home, he explained to Wayne, the boy who was the current resident and whom you're about to hear from, the lengths to which he would go to get his mom's attention. Hi, how you doing? You're Wayne, right? I met you before. <laughs> Hasn't changed too much outside the interior decoration. My dad put that fireplace in, and I used to sit with a deck of cards. I did magic when I was about your age. Every place in the house, I had a deck of cards in my hand. Drive my mother crazy. My mother would be upstairs in the bathroom. Now, you may not believe this, but I would go into the bathroom and say, take a card. (laughs) 
That was Carson. By the way, he had taped this, played it on a special. He'd return to his home, his old home, to see what it was like. And just the way he dealt with his kid, you know, one of the unique qualities we'll learn about Carson as we go on, no matter who sat in that chair, presidents, ordinary Americans doing bird calls, singers like Frank Sinatra, rock artists, he treated them all the same. None of them got preferred status or diminished status. He just played it even. And he just loved, he loved, loved, loved people. As Johnny got older, he had new reasons for perfecting his magic, which became his all-consuming interest, where he learned the craft of illusion, of becoming bigger, of projecting and misdirecting and giving you a greater sense of something that maybe wasn't always entirely him. I took up magic uh, when I was young yes. because I was somewhat shy and within myself and I thought well, that would be a good way to go to parties yeah. you know, I read those ads yeah. you know be and the life of the party and get girls yeah. mainly I got it uh, did it to get girls <laughs> neither one worked well but lots of people do that they'd like to get up and perform you can be the center of attention without being yourself as such yeah you'll hear about that we'll be doing uh, next week an hour on Al Pacino and his craft and you'll learn that Pacino had the same thing to say so many of these guys you would not think it it's very counterintuitive but they do all the things they do because they're shy. This is the only way they can communicate to folks. Lots of musicians, musicians share that same characteristic. Arsenio Hall, host of the breakout late night Arsenio Hall show from the 1990s, illustrates, well, one of the other things that Carson had going for him, and it wasn't just humility. It was a near-perfect sense of timing. He had the perfect barometer in his head of when to go and when to stay out. He could save you if the show needed it, or he could let you do your thing. His ego could let you do your thing. And this is what made Carson great in the end. Joan Rivers, well, she agreed with him. He knew where you were going. He knew when to come in and say, how fat was she? He knew when not to say it. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. <laughs> You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. Bumping in and out here, you're going to be hearing many of the people who sang on The Tonight Show, and you're going to be hearing their performances. This is Cindy Lauper playing her big hit time after time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on Johnny Carson. You'll hear from Jerry Seinfeld, Drew Carey, and so many other big, big modern comedian and modern stars. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've got a song, I ain't got no melody. I'm gonna sing it to my friend. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Billy Preston. That was him singing on the Tonight Show set. We had just heard from Arsenio Hall and Joan Rivers about Johnny Carson's real, genuine, genuine gift of generosity. Here's Jerry Seinfeld's very first appearance on The Tonight Show. My folks are moving to Florida. Uh, they don't want to move to Florida, but they're in their 60s, and that's the law. <laughs> Long Island. You're, I think you evicted from Long Island, aren't yeah, you, 60? They have like a leisure police of some kind. <laughs> get the golf clubs and get in the van, folks. You know. Listen to Carson laughing. See, the thing is, he wanted his guys to do great when they appeared. Some stars don't want to see the people sitting next to him do better than them. This was the key to Carson. Leno couldn't replicate this. Letterman couldn't replicate this because their egos were too big. Colbert, Stewart, loved them, but they never made their guests funnier. And this is why none of them held a candle to Carson. And they all looked up to Carson as a genius, but didn't quite understand the, the reason he was. Want to play a a clip now, and Carson was so generous with this guy. Uh, every time he came on, Carson would just set him up and set him up and set him up, and it's the one and only Rodney Dangerfield. Smoking, that's another one. Try to stop smoking. That's a beauty, huh? Well, with cigarettes, my wife and I, we made a deal, my wife and I. We only smoke after sex. I've got the same packed house since 1975. <laughs> what bothers me is my wife. She's up to three packs a day. <laughs> Tell you the truth, and my wife and I, we never have sex. No. Now we get undressed, we can't stop laughing. You know. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing: when my wife does have sex, she screams. Ooh, especially when I walk in on her. <laughs> and on and on. I mean, Dangerfield could knock out a hundred jokes in a, in, in a seven to eight minute hit. We hear now from a grateful and emotionally moved. Drew Carey describing his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Curtain opens, you know, Johnny Carson introduces me, and it's just like I dreamed it. It's just exactly like I dreamed it. I go on the stage, I hit the mark. Then he says my favorite thing on the menu, it's a hot dog with cheese and bacon. Yeah, not enough nitrates in a hot dog, gotta put some bacon on top of there. And for an extra dollar, they'll put chili on top of the whole thing. For people who don't care anymore. I remember seeing Johnny Carson holding onto the desk. He's holding onto the desk because he's laughing so hard so he doesn't fall off the chair. Because he's like, he's like convulsing. That's the kind of food just marches right down your throat, you know. <laughs> Follow me, boys. We're going to the heart. <laughs> he goes like this. And I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I, I'm like, oh, no, nobody gets called over for the tonight. That's a big thing. It's like a religious experience. And then after that, my career was made. You're funny as hell. Thanks, I appreciate that. You Thank really you. are. Thanks. Uh, oh, you too. Yeah. So. <laughs> and you know, he said you too back to Carson, and Carson laughed. He didn't say, hey, kid, what are you doing? And he laughed and, you know, just naturally. If you're like me when you think of Carson, memories of your family pop into your head too. Because nighttime is one of those rare times in our day when the family can get together under one roof. Here's late night host Conan O'Brien. 
My dad would always say the same thing. Let's just watch the monologue. We'll watch a little bit of the monologue. I'm laughing and my father's laughing. And how, how often can you watch something with your father, you know? Okay. He crossed generations, I think. Yeah, and especially making a father and a son laugh together. So many shows now separate generations out, and Carson's brought them together, a unique talent. In 30 years, you'd be hard-pressed to guess who Johnny ever voted for. And this was another one of his gifts, unlike so many of the late-night hosts, too, who let you know who they vote for, thus alienating half the audience. They just tune out. Well, that's the way it should be, actually. Why alienate your audience? Why alienate your own people? Here's Jay Leno. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never questioned anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's, that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. <laughs> Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis, lost his voice. And I do have a late-breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course, not really. I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. <laughs> you know, in order to avoid looking partisan, Carson would avoid, well, almost any invitations from any big political figures. Hillary and Bill, he declined the invitation. He also had said once, I was photographed at the White House with Hubert Humphrey, and I'm sorry I did that. What was obvious then, and is even more obvious now, is that Carson's unwillingness to allow his personal politics to insult his audience is the kind of old-school showbiz class that's all but extinct today. Here's Johnny on that very subject. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. Uh, I try not to, uh, and we've had some criticism on the show. Some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value. It's not controversial. It's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. It's a hard thing to admit with that much power. I mean, there weren't many wealthier guys in Hollywood, and I think so often today people get out of their lane and try and get into another lane. Musicians do this all the time. They're singing, you've paid your ticket, you've paid your dollar, and there they go. And you just want to tell them, shut up. They'll opine about the war, and, and it just, why do it? Why bother? Carson, no such thing. In addition to hosting the show, Johnny loved to appear in sketches. He learned a lot from the Carol Burnett show in this way. And he also created a state characters, characters through which he could disappear and engage in a more daring brand of humor, one of them being Karnak the Great. A losing streak. A losing streak. <laughs> Describe a man running naked after chugging prune juice. He didn't mind making a complete idiot of himself. He'd wear that hat in that scene. He would walk up. That little Alibaba music would play. He would come on over, do the pratfall over the desk every time. Trip, it would break. He'd sit down, and they did this every week on Tuesday night. Forever. Never let it go. Here's Conan O'Brien 
on why he thinks we all loved and watched Johnny Carson. I don't think anybody was watching Johnny Carson to write how his material was. Do you know what I mean? You liked him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. I think we liked him so much because one of the things Carson did, and did beautifully, was share his flaws, even the painful parts of his life, with his audience. Here's Carson on his, his divorce I suppose the lowest, lowest point I had was when I, when I, was my first divorce. Because my children were quite young. And that sense of failure uh, overcomes you. Uh, that you have uh, been less than you should have as a husband or a father. Mm-hmm. And those guilt feelings can be overwhelming at times. Especially if the children are young. That's probably one of the big low points I had. Well, it ends up he had more divorces. And he shared them with the audience. And most importantly, he allowed his staff to heckle him, and he even heckled himself. The decision you have to make is how do you want to handle it? You don't want to be bitter about it. You don't wish to uh, do any jokes that are cruel or to hurt anyone. So you try to turn it and take the the joke on yourself if you can. And have fun with the the situation. Uh, And that's what you do. You just sit and you... It's a gut instinct. What a gut he had... Here's Johnny, well, cracking jokes on Johnny. I heard from my cat's lawyer today. <laughs> my, my cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. My cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. Johnny's making fun of how much money he's going to have to pay out. He's making fun of an acrimonious divorce in which someone he's been married to, maybe a couple of years, is taking, well, probably half of everything. And... What kind of men do this? And this is truly the greatness of Johnny Carson. Today for the hour, we're going to talk about the man. We're going to hear his work, his art. We're going to play lots more clips. You can just hear, well, our favorites. And you're listening to Tiny Tim because there was no kind of musical act Johnny didn't parade before the American public. And none was more comical and entertaining and endearing than Tiny, Tim, him, her, whatever. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've worked hard and I'd fight hard for the old red, white, and blue. And I'll die a whole lot harder if it comes to where I have to. I'm a black, waving, patriotic nephew of my Uncle Sam, a rough, riding, fighting Yankee man. This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Johnny Cash singing on The Tonight Show. And we had just listened to Tiny Tim. That's some really smart booking. You got to love that about Johnny. So often people will just go with a certain musical style. A, they're cutting off their audience. And B, who the heck are they to say one kind of music's better? Just play it all. And he let them all come through. He was really ecumenical and generous that way. 
And, you know, we couldn't get over it over the break. And we said, we just need some more, well, Rodney Dangerfield. Now you can, I know my wife cheats on me. Every time I come home, the parrot says, quick, out the window, you know? I mean, my house, my house, I can't relax. Really? I, got my, I got a dog, he drives me nuts. Oh. I got a dumb dog, you know, we call him Egypt. Every room, he leaves a pyramid. <laughs> my kids, they don't help either. You no know? good, huh? Ooh, no, my kids, they're real smart kids, I got, you know. Yeah. Well, the other day, I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so are you. <laughs> Mean kid, a very mean kid. He scots taste worms to the sidewalk, then watches the birds get hernias. Are you kidding me? Mean kid. Mean kid. And my daughter, too. She's no bargain either. My daughter, you kidding? Well, she's been picked up so many times, she's starting to grow handles. I mean, you're kidding. Her graduation book, her picture is horizontal. It's ridiculous. My daughter, they call her Federal Express, you know. What's that? Yeah, when she goes to a guy's apartment, she absolutely positively has to be there over. <laughs> I mean, I tell you, trouble because they play around so young today, very young. I was talking to my doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombach. You know my doctor? Yes. Well, he told me last week in his office he got six cases of VD. I mean, he's all right now, you know. <laughs> oh, he's a strange doctor. Strange doctor. Oh, right. I asked him if my heart was strong enough for sex. He told me not if I join in, you know. <laughs> oh, it's right, Doc. But everyone wants love. Love is the answer, John. Everyone's looking for love. Deep love. A lifetime of deep love, you know. I'm looking for a shallow half hour, you know. <laughs> And there you have it. What Carson would do is just set him up. He'd just ask a question and let Rodney take the stage. How many guys do that? They get in the way. About the closest Carson came to explaining himself is in this vintage Tonight Show clip in which he's talking to celebrity interviewer Rona Barrett. She takes the opportunity to ask him questions, which for a while he answers with surprising honesty. But then, well, she asks one question too many. Here we I go. grew up in the Midwest, kind of a normal, I guess what you'd call normal upbringing, you know, the part of the country. Uh, my, my folks were supportive in what I wanted to do. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. From oh, the very yeah. beginning? Oh, sure. How old? Well, I must have been about 12, 13 years old. I knew I wanted to, to entertain. You like the attention? Oh, sure. But why? Why you? I mean, why at age 12 or 13? Because I was in a play or something, and I got up, and I did something, and people laughed. And all of a sudden, you say, hey... That sounds pretty good. So it makes you the center of attention. Yes, but why did you want the attention? Hmm? Why did you want the attention? Why did I want the attention? Because I was shy. Ah. Because I was shy. Now that sounds like a, a ambivalence, right? No. On stage, you see, when you're on stage in front of an audience, you are kind of in control. When you're off of the stage or in a situation where there are a lot of people, you're not in control. And I felt awkward. So I went into show business thinking it would give me a little more, I could overcome that shyness. Where do you think the shyness emanated from? I, I bought it in Chicago. <laughs> enough, enough, Johnny was saying with this line of inquiry, though he let it go pretty far. And again, 
most hosts wouldn't let the person sitting there ask them questions. Again, Johnny's generous nature, but also this great gut to know what is entertaining and also when not to be entertaining. Jerry Seinfeld, Seinfeld, who ended his own show on his own terms years later, understands more than most what Carson really meant to late-night TV. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get The Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. Leno took it over, and now we've got, well, we know who we've got there now. Jimmy Fallon's doing his best, and these guys are good. But uh, Carson was unique, and it was, I think, because he just didn't try too hard. He just laid back and let others fill the slot. Carson walked away from The Tonight Show after 30 years at the top of the late-night ratings and of his own volition. By the way, we should do an entire hour on people who actually retired, well, way too long. And how many actually retire at the right time? I mean, think about it. Think of athletes. Think of Michael Jordan. I mean, he stepped away, and then he went and played baseball. And he looked ridiculous. And then he came back to the NBA, and he was getting the ball stripped of him, and he just looked terrible. Trying to think of the boxers who didn't. I mean, Joe Lewis kept boxing. It was just a tragedy. Muhammad Ali kept going. I mean, who did? Rocky Marciano retired right. Johnny Carson retired right. Led Zeppelin just said, you know what, we're done. John Bonham died, and they said, let's not look ridiculous. But I, I really, that's about it. Jesse, you can think of anybody? only person that comes to mind right now is Tiger Woods. He should probably hang out up right about now. I think right about now is a good time. <laughs> a very good time. And then all these bands that just keep touring perpetually in their 80s, they're going to be out there touring. That's just Yeah, the Stones might want to consider maybe one more tour and then calling it good. Yeah, the Steel Wheelchairs Tour. <laughs> We had, a, we had a couple of buddies one night. We were going to see the Stones about a year ago, and we started making up songs that would be age-appropriate. Because, you know, they're, you know, like just waiting on a friend, we, we thought that would be better if it was just called Just Waiting on the End. <laughs> and, and just so on and so forth. Hey, hey, you, get off of my cloud, was like, hey, hey, you, kids, get out of my yard. And, and it was, I know, I got to stop. <laughs> I got to keep my day job. Well, when we come back, we're going to be doing some more and playing a lot more from Johnny Carson. And uh, we'll do a little bit more Ronnie Dangerfield because, well, of all the folks that Carson ever had, well, that was his favorite. Dwight Yoakam, by the way, was born today. He had the most musical appearances of anybody in The Tonight Show history. And we'll play a little of his music coming in off of The Tonight Show. And we're also going to play Jimmy Stewart's remarkable poem to his dog, Bo. Stewart, who had always talked about his his dog, fondly with Carson, gave him a buzz one night and said, Johnny, I want to come on. And by the way, that was what the other beautiful thing about Carson. The guys did not come on to plug their movies. I mean, Carson didn't allow for that. You came on, you did a great eight or ten minutes of entertainment. That's that. And yet, if you had a movie every once in a while, he'd let you plug it. But you better give him a solid eight, nine, or ten appearances first. And you better be good. You're going to hear Jimmy Stewart's remarkable performance. And then you'll hear, of course, Bette Midler's last performance on the final night. Of the Tonight Show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Kenny Rogers singing on the Tonight Show. Lee Habib, 
More on Johnny Carson when we come back. Out the window to boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made my life out of reading people's faces, knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American Stories. That's Dwight Yoakam, Yoakam and Buck Owens appearing together on the set of The Tonight Show. Again, every kind of musical style it, it appreciated and admitted. Carson held back nobody. Again, Tiny Tim, we had just broken into before. Carson, again, was born on this day in history in 1925. He died on January 23, 2005, from emphysema. He was 79 years old. And looking back on Carson's life, his biographer, Bill Zeem, had this to say on Carson's formula for success. In the end, he put out a better product across the board, and it was because he was smart enough to know how to give room to funny people or to engaging people and, and let them shine. And let them shine, he did. You know, one of the great moments, I think, in late-night history, Jimmy Stewart would come on regularly, and he would just come on and tell stories. He, he was way past the point of his career where he was doing a movie every year, and it was just wonderful, and he was always prepared with something you could tell that was rehearsed, often even written. And in this particular clip, Johnny invites Jimmy on to talk about, well, his dog, Bo. And Jimmy, you're going to hear a little fumbling, and you're going to hear Carson crack a joke. It's because Jimmy's sort of fumbling with his paper he pulls out of his suit, because this one he has to read, Jimmy Stewart. Here we go. I just... Uh... I, I just thought I'd uh, write, write a poem. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yes. Do you want to hear it? Now, this... Uh, uh, well... We could always start the... They could always start the wedding late, I guess. <laughs> now, now the, the title of it is, is Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball, or he felt like it. But, but mo- mostly, he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, 
Things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. He bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. The, suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And He'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out to stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things. And he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us. And I pat his head. And there are nights... When I, when I think I feel that stare and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair and he's not there, oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. It was the one time I ever saw Carson cry. He held back the tears. So did Jimmy Stewart. I don't think Carson was expecting that. I don't think anybody was, and that was the beauty of that show. Tune in the late night and see if you ever experienced that. And it was always possible on the Carson show. You could laugh, but my goodness, he could also make you cry. Dennis, you're calling in from Chicago. Your moment with your dad. Share that with us if you could. Absolutely, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity to share this story with you and your audience. So when I was a little boy, first and second grade, I would often get up late in the night, late for me, and sneak out, and there would be my dad watching the Johnny Carson show on a singular chair in the middle of the living room on the console TV. 
And my dad was kind-hearted enough to let me jump on his lap and watch the Carson show for 10 or 15 minutes with him before he would shoot me back to bed. And we had a wonderful time with that together every now and then. And back about oh, three days after Christmas, when I was in first or second grade, Johnny Carson told a joke about Santa Claus. And the joke implied that Santa Claus really doesn't exist. And then Johnny caught himself. He said, oops, there may be some naughty boys and girls still awake. And I just gave up the ghost that Santa doesn't exist. And so I shot a look up at my dad, and I asked him, I said, Dad, is this true? And he looked down at me and said, Son, Santa Claus is right here. And he pointed to his back pocket where his wallet was. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for that story, for the memories. I know so many listening have them, and uh, I know that memory is one that's close to you. You can hear it in your voice. Thanks for calling. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Well, on the last night of his broadcast, Bette Midler came out, and she closed the proceedings. And Bette, people don't know this about her, was a remarkable singer in her early years in the 70s down in New York City uh, and down into particular neighborhoods where torch singers and balladeers played. She was gifted. She went on to act, and people don't know this part of her career. But Bette came out. She was the last performer, and this is what she did for Johnny. Well, that's how it goes. And, John, I know you're getting anxious to close. So thanks for the cheer I hope you didn't mind me Bending your ear For all of the years For the laughs, for the tears For the class that you showed Make it one for my baby And one more for the road That long, long Doesn't get much better than that, folks. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, we covered the life of Johnny Carson. And it's interesting where he came from, because he also attributed so much of his success to that small town in Nebraska. Right square in the middle of the country. Solid family upbringing. Solid, solid life. And he just, again, so generous, shining a light on others. The last thing he did in his life on the air was shining a light on Bette Midler's remarkable talent and simply reacting to it. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, 
passed away. our American stories and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform and now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD more soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War and have died in actual battle 22 veterans commit suicide every day but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Guitar. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time. Your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can 
make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable, it's supposed to be fun, and the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who, have, who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar. And I will say it was a, uh, it was a good experience for both of us. It made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student. He was trying to teach me how to finger pick. So I enjoyed it. I could listen to him all day, just finger pick on the music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And, but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar, but that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress, and it is it's the best de-stressor I know of, and believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time, but I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program and, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know, all non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family, uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here on Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, and in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace and so thanks again Jesse for finding this pick up a guitar one day go get an old used piano just start playing it just start strumming it just start tickling the keyboards I like to do nothing better at my home this is our American stories guitar for vets and by the way this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country and as they give of their time it's not always their money they can give but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry, and it is a ministry. 
here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. Alright, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. 
but they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being a 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only gonna take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. If anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr, <laughs> wow. Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course, you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line, and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below us. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary, not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Vanek gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Vanek walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that held other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! What a goal! point, over to Blake. Blake beats it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! 
If there wasn't a Marty McSorley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg and he speared Gretz and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down and I really hit him hard. Almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes out. Now I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings at 3 o'clock. You've got to go fight the toughest kid in the school on the playground, and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping the night before a game and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're... 10, 12 years into the league, you've had your shoulder fixed two or three times, you've broken your hand a couple of times, and there's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you. He wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. Words at the edge of the circle, and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to, that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash the stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here. And for anybody who loves the sport, well, you're loving this. And for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport, which I did, I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York. But I always wondered, why all the fights and who are these guys? Well, let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler. Here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers. Some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers. Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policeman for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analyzing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skill players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without... Guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers, he wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky. I mean, he had Samanko, and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Samanko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What do you think Ray Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you, and if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. 
So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them, and, and their owner had said, this isn't going to happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner, said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up, because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could do it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just gonna beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's what it dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was like that, that, that uber violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and you know, I almost had to pull them all of hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. 
As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives. The story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same within hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sport. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. 
I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than, you know, to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. When you're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fights also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that, you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaForge spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL, but after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one -on -one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that, that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain, 
on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves. The Enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the Enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the Enforcer defends, we would love the Enforcer because the Enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been a, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. 
Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself, and uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement, but we wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcer stories. 